There's some really stupid things in this bill too. So first stupid thing, you get, uh, we're going to start with bad news because people like that, is the name of the bill. The name of the act is the Inflation Reduction Act. There is absolutely nothing in the bill designed to reduce in inflation. This is just, it's just Congress making up a name because. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Uh, we are back with an exciting, or sort of semi-kinda exciting, second hour of the Personal Wealth Card, st starring Jake and... Jeff. McClure. We are going to be talking about lots of interesting things this hour. Um, shrinking and growing economies in the world. Um... Uh, new laws being written in um, demographics, which is my favorite of those, even though it sounds the more bo most boring on the surface. Is it the most boring or a boring-est? I guess it would Nothing be like most yeah. boring because it's hard to be boringer. Yeah. This is boringer than the last one. I would think more boring. Yeah, I would think so too, but you know. Because it's got, it's got two syllables, boring. So you're supposed to put more, most, less and so on in front of something if it has two syllables if it only has one syllable you throw a suffix onto the word to make it to to modify the term Un unless we just have to go through and list the nine thousand exceptions so english is just as logical as economics right right easily easily so we have like i said lots to talk about do you have a subject you want to start with I, I want to talk. Let's start first with the well, Inflation I, Reduction Act, then, if, unless you okay, want to do I, was, I think we're in expansion mode in the United States economy, not in recession mode. Um, I agree. That, was, that ties into what we were talking about at the end of the last hour. Why do I think so? Well, productivity just dropped a bunch, month over month. In the, in the second quarter, productivity dropped in the United States, um, and, and, and probably still dropping. Why is it dropping? It, Productivity drops, six, if you go back and look at productivity numbers and you look at where they rise and when they fall, when businesses are hiring a lot of people and they're about ready to expand at the beginning of an expansion, productivity drops. Why does it drop? Well, they just hired a bunch of new people who don't know what they're doing, but they're getting paid anyway. That was one of the and subjects also, I wanted to talk yeah, about on demographics. So you're right on they, track. Go ahead. They also take their most productive workers and pull them off the line. And say, train these newbies, train these noobs on how to do stuff. And that makes their productivity drop further. At the end of an economic boom, when we're sliding into recession and companies start laying people off, they don't lay off their best workers first. They lay off their least productive people first if they're being rational. So per and hour work, goes up. Yeah, per hour worked, more things are produced because the most productive are the ones that are kept. So that is an indication we are entering into an economic boom or an economic, we're, we're not, it, 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 if there's a cyclical economic cycle in the United States, I think there is. A cyclical world. cycle? No. A cyclical cycle. Um, I love that. Um, <laughs> then we seem to have passed through a low point, which I think we did, and are on the way back up again, which makes perfectly good sense. Because if you remember during the 
pandemic and when people were at home, we went through some degree of low point. I think we're in uh, expansion mode. I don't. I hate to argue with Bloomberg. I mean, they got more money for economists than I've got money to eat lunch. But they—that's um, a dumb analogy. Anyway, yeah. they. But but they're it's a thinking equally they, dumb they, to all the others. They're saying their their models are saying 100 percent probability of recession in the next 18 months. No, I don't think so. I think that we may do just fine. And why do I think we do just fine? Because despite all the numbers that I see, which I think some of which are very rational and some of which don't make a lick of sense at all, in my opinion, trying to get into a restaurant is difficult. Trying to buy things are difficult. And a lot of people are lined up buying things. A lot of the highways are jammed with people, with trucks that are carrying things that are people are buying. Um, I think we're doing quite well. And I think we'll continue to do quite well. I don't see any signs of, recession on the horizon at all so uh, that does say there can there might not be one because this, things could happen I, and i want to repeat what we said last week that when we look at the next six months 30 percent likelihood in our opinion of recession next 18 months maybe 50 percent mm, yeah bloomberg maybe. is saying 100 and why are we saying maybe 50 it's because we are still growing at a rapid rate and we do need to take a breather somewhere in here. Tech industry is doing it. Don't be surprised when the rest of the uh, industry takes a breather in the middle of this somewhere. Here's the wild card, big one. Europe is sliding into recession for several reasons. One, they have a terrible energy shortage now that Russia and they are no longer good buddies. Um, number two, they are undergoing a severe drought. We say, how's a drought created recession in Europe, which is not noted for having huge crop yield that much of what moves around in Europe, if you've ever been to Europe, central Europe, particularly Germany or someplace like that, the roads are very narrow and very limited. Uh, when they want to move something big, they move it on a river in a barge, lots of rivers in Europe and the rivers are literally drying up. There are places where right now. The barge traffic has halted, and there's other places where that are critical points where the barge traffic is going very slow and is likely to halt if they don't get a lot of rain, and there's not a lot of rain in the forecast. Europe going into recession affects the United States. We may not think of it too much, but they buy a lot of stuff from us. China is teetering on the edge. Nobody knows exactly what's going on in China. We can make educated guesses. But their economy does not look really, really positive right now. They will not meet their growth goals. China, I know this is going to sound strange again, China buys a lot of stuff from us, and it affects our economy. China, we live in a very, very, very interconnected world. And the rest of the world sliding into recession will have a negative effect on the U.S. economy. Um, there's some positives to it in that the commodity prices have been dropping. Uh, because the rest of the world is not buying so much stuff. They're not buying copper. They're not buying the stuff that dig out of the ground. Nickel. Uh, that means zinc. it's cheaper for us. Right. By the way, a milestone was passed last week. The amount of nickel in a nickel is now worth less than a nickel. That's a big deal. Because before that, the amount of nickel in a nickel was worth more than a nickel. I think a lot of people can remember when we changed the pennies, it was like 10 years ago, to have zinc right in the center of the penny because the amount of copper in the penny was worth more than a penny. People yes. were melting it down and selling it. And 
they're certainly not doing that anymore either. So this is the point. A lot of things are going on in the economy. There's a lot of difference in the economy from what we saw pre-pandemic. And it's because there's a series of shockwaves echoing back and forth through the economy that will go on at least another year and maybe longer. And it takes the it, it, it distorts all the measurements. Uh, we had a terrible, a huge shift in the economy during the pandemic across the world. We're having another huge shift in the in the economies across the world now. And by the way, I've said this before, but I want to say it again. There are still people who are saying that one of the stimulus acts. Now, if you're Republicans, you're saying the Democrats' stimulus act created inflation, and if you're a Democrat, you're probably saying the Republicans' stimulus acts created inflation. You're both wrong. Because the inflation in Great Britain is forecast now to be 13% year over year next month or the Our, month after. Ours is the 8.7 we were talking about before. 8.5. 8. 8. 8.5. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, and they didn't have the stimulus act. Neither Biden nor Trump gave them money. So Europe is going through the same thing. It is a global phenomenon. It's going to echo back and forth across the planet until things achieve some degree of stability. Where that stability, where that uh, equilibrium will be, we don't know yet. A lot of it has been generated by the fact that Russia invaded Ukraine. Mm -hmm. That's a fact. At the beginning of a war, you get some tremendous economic shocks, and we're getting tremendous economic shocks echoing around the world. And those produce overproduction in some areas, underproduction in other areas. And it's just the way things happen. Uh, so, a, I think we're in pretty good shape here in the United States and likely to stay the same unless there is a major change. But in this in, in unstable environment, for instance, if Russia gets backed into a corner and pops a nuke in Ukraine, all bets are off. I don't know what would happen at that point, but none of it would be particularly pleasant. Um, and there's a lot of other things that happen. There's a big plus out there that didn't make a big headlines as I thought. We are becoming more and more hostile with China and China is becoming more and more hostile with us. But there was a quiet little announcement made. Chairman Xi, Xi Jinping. Okay, the pronunciation right? was bad, but it's going to be bad Something. no matter what. It's not the universal right. pronunciation in the United States either. So um, we we have an idea who you're talking about. He's going to make though. his first foreign trip in a few months. You know, in years since the pandemic started. Three years. Yeah, he is going to come and visit Washington. He's going to come and talk to Joe Biden. That is a big plus. The fact that he is willing to come here, which rather than telling him, Biden, you must come to see me, is a big plus. Number two, the fact that the two of them are actually going to talk and negotiate and have their people negotiate means that there is a sincere desire on the part of China to wind down the tensions between the two countries, which is one piece of good news. And I also heard it was unofficial. But I read from several sources that President Z promised, or at least told President Biden, or Chairman Z told Chairman President Biden that there's going to be some tension over um, Taiwan, but he wasn't at all interested in going to war, which is another big plus. So I just thought I'd, I know it's good news, and we probably lost half our listeners because I'm actually publicizing good news. But there it is. Thank you. Thank you. Now, this is something that I'm getting a lot, a lot of commentary on from both sides of the political spectrum, the Inflation Reduction Act. So this is going to be as apolitical as I can make it, knowing that politics just means that we live in cities. Uh, it's impossible to avoid politics. But to come at this strictly from economics, there are some really cool things in this bill. 
wait, now, before you change the channel or turn this off, there's some really stupid things in this bill, too. So first stupid thing, to get uh, we're going to start with bad news because people like that, is the name of the bill. The name of the act is the Inflation Reduction Act. There is absolutely nothing in the bill designed to reduce in inflation. This is just, it's just Congress making up a name because I don't understand why they call it the Inflation Reduction Act. It doesn't make any sense to me. Let's get over that first. What's some of the good stuff in here? Well, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, there's one piece in here that's phenomenal. This is something that the Republicans have been complaining about needing since before Obamacare. Medicare is not allowed to negotiate prescription drug prices in either A or D. This is something we've talked about on the radio quite a bit. It's stupid. They are the largest purchasers of pharmaceuticals in the world, and they're not allowed to negotiate on prices. Well, this bill includes the ability in the first year to negotiate on the 10 most expensive drugs. And then in the following several years, it goes up to 15 drugs they can negotiate on. And then in a bit after that, it goes up to 20. Now, why are we limiting it? I don't really understand why it's well because the pharmaceutical folks don't want to negotiate. And they have lobbies and they have people that they pay a lot of money to go and talk to Congress about, hey, this isn't worthwhile and our profits will be hurt. Okay, so negotiation privileges for Medicare is a big deal. This is something we've been talking about a long time. This is, this is the worst part of capitalism meets the worst part of socialism when you can't negotiate, but you're allowing the pharmaceuticals to make profits. Some bad stuff. They tried to put some caps that didn't wind up going in here, for instance, on the price of insulin, that insurance companies weren't allowed to charge more than $35 a month for insulin. There was, this sounds great, and just to be very clear on this. My wife is type one. So we are very familiar with the cost of insulin and it is stupid. It's dumb. Uh, but requiring an insurance company to not charge more than $35 a month sounds amazing, except that the insurance company still has to buy it from the pharmaceutical company and we're not limiting what they can charge. So it just means that the insurance rates are going to go up. So that not making it into the law was cool, even though a lot of people would say, hey, it'd be great to only spend $35 on insulin. You would actually wind up paying more for your overall insurance by a significant amount. <laughs> so it's more status quo there. Uh, another thing this thing is doing is hiring a bunch of uh, IRS agents, some of whom will be armed a lot of whom will be doing audits. There's a lot of fear over that. Let me kind of lay out some history here. Since the year 2000, there's been a near permanent hiring freeze at the IRS. That means there are about 30% about fewer people working at the IRS today than in the year 2000. There are more people in the population more earners in the population, more people doing taxes, less people at the IRS. But the big number is still coming. Over the next five years, somewhere between 30 and 50% of the IRS workforce is expected to retire. So even with the 87,000 new people coming in, 
by this time in five years, we may be at status quo to the number we have working there today. We might have a little bit more working at the IRS than we have today, but still far less than we had working there in the year 2000. It sounds like I'm trying to defend the IRS, which is not a very popular place to be. Um, you, there's never been a time that a tax collector is a popular person, but if we want actually to keep our taxes relatively low for law abiders, we need to catch people that aren't paying taxes. And we have a pretty good culture in the United States of cheating on taxes is bad. Most of us agree with that. Auditors are likely to audit small businesses more than other businesses. Just that's true all the time. So will this be painful for people that are even paying taxes on time and correctly? Maybe. This, is, this isn't a pleasant thing to get more tax collectors. It isn't pleasant. But it is needed if we want to collect tax revenue. That's just the reality of the world. And, and saying that clearly, as clearly as possible, this new hire of auditors, even armed auditors, is not a bad thing when looking across history. This is on average a status quo. It's not just auditors that are being hired. That's correct. Uh, the IRS is short administrative workers, dramatically short. They have been cut dramatically over the years as the budget has been trimmed and trimmed and trimmed. The IRS sent a letter to me, goodness, a year ago, and I believe they were in error. They said I owed money that I don't think I owed. So I wrote them back and explained why I didn't owe the money. And I sent it to the office and sent me the letter said I owed them the money. Six months later, they had still not acknowledged receipt of the letter and had not gone into the system. So I actually, because I, then I got a letter from another office of the IRS saying, you haven't responded. And so I was able to spend several hours on the phone because that's how long on hold you have to do and get somebody who actually acknowledged, yes, I see that the letter arrived, but it was never entered into the system. We're short on personnel. We need more people at the IRS simply to handle the administrative burden of uh, the fact that their computer, somebody making data entry probably failed to failed somewhere in the data entry to note that we had said, here's what we're doing and here's the money we sent you. Um, and getting that corrected, all I've been getting is letters from computers and they don't make any sense and they're cross-wired. And when I finally got to talk to somebody at the IRS, said, we're really short on people. That's yeah. the problem. The, we don't have enough people. The latest statistics are that 90% of the people that call the IRS hang up before ever talking to anyone. Um, That's not always been true, by the way. No, it hasn't. And and it's, it's a clear movement. There was a time in the late 90s that we had too many people at the IRS. Audits were impeding business at a way... Uh, that didn't make sense. Most audits weren't resulting with extra revenue. The audits were just taking up time for the business owners and for the individuals. Now that is not the case. Most audits result in much higher revenue to the government today because they're prioritizing the audits that they know are the easiest to win. If we want to collect tax revenue without raising taxes, we need more IRS agents. That's not a universal. If we get too many IRS agents, this is a bad thing too. But if we don't want to complain about not being able to talk to the IRS when we call up about a question because we all actually do have to file our taxes, then we need more people there. So I've now laid out several good things that are in this bill. There are, There's a lot of pork barrel spending in here. There's a lot of 
uh, subsidies that are not the best type of subsidies for climate work or for any other research and development work. There's some good grants and stimulus for research and development. So, I mean, it's the whole thing about you don't want to look at what goes in a hot dog or a law. This thing is at least 30% good. Now, it doesn't do what it's stated in the title of the law. There's a lot of other things that are happening in the background, but at least 30% good is as good as almost any other law that I've seen in the last, my entire career. (laughs) So, um, as long as Congress keeps doing 30% good laws, we'll all continue to hate Congress and still kind of eke forward a bit. Uh, that's to say there are a lot of people that are making this into a much bigger thing than it is on the political spectrum because elections are coming up. The reality is that the climate change portion of this is a lot of status quo type infrastructure stuff and some additional spending on things that should have been in an infrastructure bill but got yanked out with a lot of the stuff that shouldn't have been. Ah, So that was a long-winded statement about something. There's a 15% corporate minimum tax um, in here. But not... That's the universal. universal. Well, the 15% corporate minimum tax is is in line with the agreement that a whole bunch of nations have made together. But it's not for all corporations. Not for all corporations. There's a lot of nuance there. It's a statement that, hey, for the most part, a universal, you don't go to the Cayman Islands to avoid taxes law is needed. Uh, And that's what this is. They call it a corporate minimum tax, but that's stupid because it's not the minimum. There's a lot of stupid in Congress. I just have to get that out there. And you may mention this. I may have missed it. I was reading here. But the deficit this fiscal year so far is $726 billion, and the fiscal year ends in September. Mm-hmm. 71% lower than last year's. And that sounds great, um, but it is still fantastically higher than it was three years ago. The last right. year we had stimulus acts that were part of this. Well, this is this is an interesting thing. Government spending in the first 10 months of the fiscal year has fallen 18% and receipts have increased 24%. Yeah, the receipt increase is the biggest part of the good news here. This is something that's happening. When you have tax revenue increasing 24%, that's almost always, by definition, on profits for companies, not expenses, and on actual pay given to people, which means incomes went up. That's good news. Very good news. Doesn't sound like a recession. No. No. That's what I'm saying is that the, the, the biggest reason the deficit fell, I, although admittedly spending did fall as the extended unemployment benefits and so on fell this year, but... The fact that revenues are up 24% and the government spending is down 18%, we can put caveats all around that if you want to, but it's good. I prefer caveats. It's excellent. I prefer caveats. Well, can we put yeah, caveats around I, that? I think, I think that we need to say that that's good. Um, matter of fact, in, in July, we had a $211 billion deficit. Well, multiply that times 12, and you get a big number, but not as big number as we used to have. And I think we're... I, I applaud the move in the right direction. Let's simply say that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. We need to cut back on a whole series of things. One of the issues on the Inflation Reduction Act is that no part of it that I can see beyond the negotiation privileges for Medicare is imminently needed. And to call it an Inflation Reduction Act when you're increasing spending to do it, which 
by definition, does not <laughs> lower inflation. Um, it's it's kind of humorous, uh, it, it, more than a little humorous, the fact that Congress is calling the bill the opposite of what the bill is doing. Just well, it's it's politics. It's the reality of the world that we live in. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal. I simply say that says that the uh, the the bill will slightly reduce inflation over the long term. I just it's an article in the Wall Street Journal. That's right. All I got to say. It says economists at Goldman Sachs estimated the proposal's overall spending and revenues effect would would represent less than 0.1 percent of the U.S. economy in the part of the decade and 0.2 after 2028. And it will induce in, in that's about how much it will reduce inflation, which is not much, but it's positive. Yeah. So, but um, to call it the Inflation Reduction Act, when it may, under golden circumstances, reduce inflation by 0.1%, that's a stretch for the name. Anyway, that, that is our conversation about the act that a lot of people are upset about. I've heard people saying they're arming with AK-47s, 87,000 agents, and obviously that is uh, hyperbole. <laughs> obviously. What? Yes. Who's uh, arming 87,000? There, there is no way that the U.S. government would arm them with AK-47s. That's all I'm saying. Or much of anything else. Very few IRS agents carry weapons. Uh and the AK-47 is an antiquated version. They would be arming them if they were as up-to-date as the Russians with an AK-74. But they, Very different thing. But they IRS wouldn't be agents. using anything from Kalishnikov to arm agents. Anyway, I realize right. this is anyway. humorous. <clears throat> okay. Yes. So obviously it's AK-74s that all of them are going to be armed with, not 47s, <sighs> you see. Just put that, put that to rest. <clears throat> That was a false official statement. <laughs> it was an unofficial but false statement. Uh, yes, uh, there, there's a, a lot going on in the world. Um, the Bank of England made the biggest rate rise since 1995. They went up half a percent. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are above 0% as well. They are up at the 1.75%. As their rates, so they're below us. Most of Europe is now above the negatives. Um, this is something we've talked about and kind of laughed about over the uh, last, I don't know, five or six years. That the negative rates have been around for so long that um, basically the banks are just paying people to deposit with them. Um, or I'm seeing, sorry, they're paying, they're charging fees for deposits. And the economists out there have said, hey, we've never, throughout history, banks have never had a negative interest rate, and they go on and on about this. And I have to call time out and say, this is how banks started. You had to pay them to guard your money. This, this is, so you've had to pay them to deposit there. And the United States, during the same time period, hasn't had a negative interest rate. But if you include all the fees and so on in most accounts, you've had a negative interest rate. So... We're now in positive interest rate territory almost globally. That's a good sign uh, for consumers there. Uh, yeah. Do you have some more? I've got a lot of good stuff. I've, I've got a really exciting one if you don't have anything. I'll get to your exciting ones. Go ahead. Okay. Um, those of you that listen very often to this program know that I like to talk about demographics and that the, at the root of the economy, the things that are most important to growth or not growth, shrinkage in the economy comes down to demographics and productivity. Uh, you have to have a productive workforce and you have to have 
an educated workforce, whether or not it's growing, has a big deal to do with, with what the future of the country looks like. And there's been this thing that's been hanging out over us that's very politicized, it's very affirmative action sounding, but that's the gender pay gap. And I've done a deep dive into a series of things. The Wall Street Journal's recently done uh, some reports on gender pay gaps. And so I went to the American Journal of Sociology, and there was a great study done there. The methodology on there is way beyond reproach. They, it was done at a series of institutions across a lot of things. It was uh, uh, really well researched. There was a bias in the research in that people knew that there was a gender gap and they were trying to point out the politics of it. So there's a bias there. Uh, it was the, it was run through the gender action portal of Harvard University. Here's the thing that was found. It isn't a gender pay gap. It's a motherhood penalty. And you may enjoy this part. This is one of those things that it really got me. Across all ages of worker, a woman with no children is paid more than a man with no children. Did you get that? Yep. That's the opposite of what we should expect here. The thing is that beginning about the third year after graduation from college, there's a significant pay gap. And what this study showed is that men becoming a father led to getting raises. Women becoming mothers led to not getting promotions, stagnating pay, or pay going down. This is a even in cases where the man is more likely to be working at home or working with the kids more often in a part-time type job. There's a cultural thing that says fathers need more pay and mothers need less pay or are less reliable. And something that popped up in the pandemic is that the gender that was most likely to stop working during the pandemic was female when there were kids at home. So we have a cultural bias that says women are more responsible for the upbringing of children, and it leads to pay issues, even in cases, this is strange, where the mother is the primary breadwinner and the father is stay at home, that mother is, is not going to get the same raises as a man primary breadwinner with the woman at home. This is fascinating. What does it say about us as humans? I don't know. <laughs> That's kind of irrelevant in my, in my statement here to see it there. And then this, this study was started back in March of 2007, and it's been going forward since then. The gender pay gap has been narrowing. Uh, and when, you know, this big surprising thing that women with no children get paid at any age group higher than men with no children at any age group. So age group to age group shouldn't be that surprising because it's pretty clear across colleges that women represent higher grade point averages. There are more than 10% of the female population in the top 10% of the graduating class almost every time. So if we're just measuring in grades, 
or in IQ points. Women are smarter than men on average, just like if we're just measuring on weightlifting, men are stronger than women on average. It's just fascinating to see that when women do not have kids, they make more money than men that do not have kids. That shouldn't be fascinating. It should be, of course. What's actionable about this? I haven't a clue. <laughs> well, pay people based on what they are capable of doing and try not to think that they're more likely to stay home with their kids if they're not more likely to stay home with their kids. One of the things I've seen over the years and having employed people now pretty consistently for 40 years, I have seen a pattern and the pattern has changed. In the early probably three quarters of the probably 30 years, if the husband and wife are working and a child becomes sick and stays home from school, it is the wife who typically took the day off to stay home with the kid. So and, females and, had a low had a higher absentee rate because of they because they had children. Yeah. And now you, you tie yeah, the, let, well, me, let, me, let me let me let me just real quick, it's just an interjection then back to you. Women at that point are also more likely to make less money, and so it would make more sense for them to take the time off than the man, and the less money might be coming because they are more likely to take the time off. There's a in, in, circular equation. It's, it's entirely possible. But at that point, I was hiring almost exclusively women, right. occasionally hire a man. So I wasn't paying the women less than I would the men. Matter of fact, the pay scale was exactly equal here. However, um, for instance, in the military, we for many years we were in Colleen for the first half of my career was in Colleen, in the Colleen area, and the army doesn't typically give a guy a day off if his kid gets sick. That was a big deal. They now, do now, sometimes, right? But not. They still kind of hesitate to do that. I mean, if they're in Afghanistan or wherever they were during that period of time, and their kid got sick in the United States, they didn't give them the day off. Um, that's a joke. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> recently I have seen something change. We do have uh, men and women who work for us now. And it's about as likely for a man to take a day off when the kids get sick as it is for a woman to take a day off when the kid gets sick, which means that I, th I see an equalization coming from right. the perspective of an employer. If you and that's have, why we're seeing the pay gap narrow. Right. I think if you see whether there's any intent, if, if a manager sees that there is a specific identifying factor about a group of people who work for that company that caused them to have a higher absentee rate, they're going to tend to pay that specific group of people who can be identified less money. Yeah. And, 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 and the other thing, let me say something else has changed. It used to be in the first half of my 40 year employer history if the husband got a new job someplace else, the wife quit and yeah. went with the husband. Yeah. That's not necessarily true anymore. And again, it's the husband got the bigger pay. So if the husband got the bigger pay, the wife often went with the husband. As, as pay scales have started to equalize and as career opportunities have started to equalize, I have found that that's no longer true. Sometimes the wife says, no, I'm working here. This is my career. And I've seen this in our clients as well as in our employees. Uh, husband, you're going to follow me around yeah. if need be. But I ain't leaving because my career is very important and I'm not leaving. And that that's simply, I can tell you, 40 years ago, that would not have ever happened. And I'm glad to see the change. It works better that way. Yeah. So that's those are all things that are shifting now. They're not getting a lot of attention. 
There's some other things. The population of India may already have passed that of China. It may be the number one population on the planet at this point. There's another maybe. We may have already hit or about to hit peak population on the planet. We're getting close. Some demographers believe with the rise in education uh, that population growth is going to fall off tremendously to maybe not grow at all. And that is interesting. It's something that that's a major shift in the thought process for the planet, if the planet had a thought process. You can you know what I mean there. So the the, yeah. the population of Africa, for instance, as education and uh, power grids and so on have come to parts of Africa, the population growth slowed down, just like we see in a lot of other places um, and across India. Well, they're going to be growing for a while there, but the rate of growth is slowing. Where China's growth rate is not; it's a shrink rate. And they're having somewhere around 1.5 kids per woman in China. And there are fewer women in China than there are men in China by a large, large factor. So they have a quickly shrinking population in China that's going to lead to some major demographic retirement issues in the next 25 years. Those are, you know, when people talk about China being a rising power, there is a demographic explosion that's going to hit their economy in the next couple of decades that is really hard for me to see how they're going to deal with it. I, there's going to be a large percentage of their population leaving their workforce in the next couple of decades. And when that happens, they don't have any social safety nets. I know people think of China as being communist or socialist. They don't have social security. They don't have Medicare. So how they deal with that is an open question. That's a big deal for the future. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, This is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, We are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the Personal Wealth Coach being our title. The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is and it's less disclosureable it takes less time to do if it's just the same name so we've been doing this program here uh on this in on this station 1400 a.m in temple since 1996 we've been doing this a long time and we haven't been paid for it ever uh we also have not ever paid for it so we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. 
So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, And so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people know phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, Thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.